everyone, welcome back. Uh, this is One Step Beyond and I'm Aram Arslanian. Today's guest is uh, someone I have wanted to have on the show for a super long time. I'm really delighted we have him here. So Adam, welcome to the show. Hello. So for the uninitiated, for the people who don't know, who are you and what do you do? I'm Adam. I own a rock shop. My biggest thing I do is sell crystals and fossils, those pretty rocks you put on a shelf like this. That's my job. Sourcing them, selling them. Uh, I make jewelry. So as an artisan, that's how I started. Heck yeah. All right. So what's the name of your shop? Rubble Rock and Gem. All right. And when did you found it? I'd say 2018. Early 2018 is when I started doing like a business with a proper location. Mm -hmm. um, I have my corporate tax years and all that. But having an actual brick and mortar and getting really into sales 2018. Okay. So do you have any kind of like you know, business background like that of like a business owner prior to that? No, I did a, a few months of uh, business admin in university when I was like 18 years old right out of high school. But um, yeah, I just flunked out of that real fast. <laughs> That's about, <laughs> I learned a bit on Excel and uh, for, remember maybe two terms, but yeah, I would say none, absolutely none um, as far as business background. So where did you grow up? Vanderhoof. It's a small town in northern BC, um, 5,000 people up by Prince George. So went there for pretty much all my um, elementary high school years. Got out of there as soon as possible. Went to Kamloops, which was like the new big city, 90,000 people in British Columbia. I lived in BC my entire life. Um, so I went to Kamloops and then uh, that was for school, actually, what I just talked about there, flunked out. Um, had no direction in life, went backpacking for a while into US and just roamed around, literally went the direction the wind blew some days and spent months doing that. Came back, decided uh, I wanted to save the polar bears because I found out about like uh, different, you know, gatherings like the rainbow gathering stuff. And I met hippies. I'd never seen hippies before living up north, new age hippies we'll call them. And uh, they inspired me. They inspired my dreadlocks, my appearance, what you see now. Um, I think mostly because like when I encountered them, they were the first people that kind of stood up to me in life. Like I'll always remember this moment of uh, there was someone that um, was talking about palm oil and just like deforestation. And I made a joke about it as like an asinine teenager from small town, doesn't know any better wood. And I got put in my place. And I think in a way it was like the first time someone really put me in my place. And I think I gained respect for that. I don't know what I call it, modality personality after that. And I learned more about it. And so grew my hair out, went to school when I was maybe 22 for my first degree, environmental studies, wanting to, like I said, save the polar bear. Realized there was so much more to it and um, finished the program. But, uh, but yeah, anyway, long story short, it ended up with me going to school in Vancouver back then. And I've been here ever since. So about 10 years now, 11 years I've been in Vancouver. All right, so I'm going to start with like an obvious question, but I got to know, like, when did you first get into rocks and like, why? Like, what was the reason behind it? Everyone always asks me that. So I can't answer it. And I think that's the beauty of that question because it's like the only thing in my life now. But when I was a kid, um, I just had an affinity towards them, right? So I was down by the creek collecting little pebbles. I'd tumble them. I'd sort them. I had really like a like a really curated display, but it was all sentimental rocks, nothing of value. Even like 
you know, we'd travel sometimes as a family and, and we'd stop at a flea market and I'd be there like digging through the little rock bins of the flea market vendors and I'd spend half an hour to pick the $3 rock, but the perfect one for my collection. So I was, I was more into them than most kids back then. Um, and it's one of those things where like as an adult, I can weigh the pros and cons of all the decisions I make. Um, and I understand the reasoning of why I partake in certain things as a kid. I don't know why I liked rocks, just always did. Um, I hit puberty and I stopped caring about rocks. So it wasn't until I got to Vancouver, a girlfriend was um, was making fun of me because my apartment was just barren. Like, uh, like I had my backpacker days where like, again, everything was just minimalist. Like I got rid of, uh, um, like I didn't have a phone or anything, no watch. Cause I'm like, Oh, there's clocks all around me in the world. What do I need a clock for any of that? And, uh, like, um, so I had almost nothing. And so when I moved into apartment, I, I slept on my sleeping bag on the ground for probably the first month until like, you know, like I was just super, super minimalist. Anyway, I had to decorate my apartment. I went to a rock shop to like add some fossils to the apartment to, cause I was like, Oh, as a kid, I liked fossils, you know? So added that. And, um, and when I was at one of the rock stores in town, um, I overheard them talking about a rock club you could join and they'd take you out digging. And as a kid, I always wanted to go dig, but like, like any parents, my parents didn't know where to take me, right? Like where, where are rocks, right? So when I heard I could join the club, it kind of like sparked this, I guess, childhood, like want to go search for rocks that I never got to fulfill, join the club. And from there, it just like snowballed into what I am today. That's amazing. So you did environmental science. It's your first degree. Is that correct? Yes. And so you finished that. And then what? So I went for environmental studies, like I said, wanting to save the polar bears. And I like I got highest GPA in my program. I was doing all kinds of volunteer work on the side. And um, it was tough, too, because I'd, I'd meet all these other kids in the program. And I'd say, oh, you know, you can go like hang out on a Greenpeace boat this weekend. It's in the harbor. Right. And so I'd go volunteer on Greenpeace boats or I did like local NGOs too, like pulling weeds in some of the local parks or um, all kinds of things, just different events, volunteering at like waste and recycling management, like zero waste events. So I did so many things like volunteer the year with two different organizations, like just putting hours in because it was like my extracurricular for my my studies. I figured, oh, if I'm going to get a job after show, I'm interested, blah, blah. So I was doing all these things and um, and it led to leadership summits. I got to travel across Canada for different paid, uh, paid I'll call them adventures, basically summits, things like that. Um, and got to meet cool people and go through different trainings. I finished environmental studies, and, but during, during environmental studies, my favorite electives were philosophy. Like, I don't know why it just tore my head apart and put it back together again. You know, as a, as a high school kid, like you get stoned or drunk with your buddies and you think, you know, what is time, man? And all your buddies try and figure it out. And like, and then you read like some of the most uh, accredited papers over the last 2000 years on time. And you go, this is a better answer than any of theirs or mine. Right. It's cool because it addressed a lot of life's questions. And like, I was smart enough to know this is not going to help me get a job. Right? right. But I enjoyed it because it, it gave me conclusions into, into questions. that I think a lot of us never really answer like, um, like religion, right? Like I, my parents were half into Catholicism, especially when they divorced, right? Looking for meaning. I got dragged along to church with them. But like, there's all these questions where I didn't think God exists, but I never really fully accepted it as an atheist. And I'm not like a practicing atheist or anything. I just don't think there's a God, right? But for me, addressing all these philosophy questions helped me address those things, um, 
how I want to treat other people, right? You get into ethics of how I want to treat myself. Um, and you look at community standards versus legality. There's all kinds of other questions about metaphysics, like, you know, behind this wall, does everything even exist or does it just become existent when I walk around and look at it, right? Like there's all kinds of questions that are fun to answer and you learn to argue a lot. That's everyone says, oh, philosophers learn how to argue, but I also learned how to get along too. Cause you spend, like I spent another two years, that was an associate's degree to finish the philosophy program. And you spend day in, day out arguing with the other students. The teachers are really good where they'll kind of pose an open-ended question and then they just let the students argue and teach themselves. And then the, the teacher comes in at the end with kind of like the best answers and you kind of take them all as a grain of salt, right? But it was great because you argue, you argue, and then you eventually just learn like to mess with people while they're arguing with you or you learn, oh, this isn't worth me arguing or um, sometimes you argue to be the, the devil's advocate or whatever it is, but you learn, I guess maybe my opinions don't matter unless the, the situation is dire, I would mm -hmm. say, I guess, like, like if you're just in a classroom arguing, you can kind of say whatever you want, you know, and, and philosophy, like I said, it gave me, um, a sense of alignment with self, um, replace religion or belief system or any of that, um. And it gave me a surety and, you know, logical fallacies when I argue with a partner over something or just try and get along with a partner. I understand when they're not making sense, when people are lying to me at work as, a, as an employer, or I have to confront an employee about something and try to be fair and discipline them. I can look at the ethical standards of how I want to do this and also think to myself, am I being a fair person or am I just reacting? So it gave me a lot of value for how I want to live my life. And that's why I invested in it. Like I said, wasn't going to get a job out of it, but as I was doing those electives, I just knew I wanted to do more of them. So actually while I was in environmental studies, I took electives of philosophy that had no application to my first degree. But by the final, by the time I finished, I was like, I wonder how many more classes I need. And, um, and so I just took the extra classes and finished the degree. And then I actually went into fine arts because um, while I was going to school, I was learning how to make jewelry. And uh, and so I kind of, I liked jewelry because it was stone and metal and it was fabrication, right? Like drawing was too 2D for me, but the fabrication of building something, solving a puzzle while you do it, you know, how do I make this work? You know, you get an idea in your head and you got to build it. I liked that, but I wanted to do it bigger scale. So I wanted to go into sculpture. And um, so I tried fine arts and I ended up becoming a black sheep in that program. I think I'd been in school too long and uh, I was only like 24, but uh, I definitely challenged the teachers a bit um, because I felt like I wasn't getting my money's worth. And so I kind of got pushed out of the program and I was okay for that because as I was in fine arts, everything I loved about art that I was taking on the side, like I would wake up at 7 a.m. every Saturday to take a bus to a silversmithing class, right? Every Saturday I was there, I was like learning wire wrapping. If I went anywhere, I had like tools with me on the bus, I'd be wire wrapping. Like I remember using the posts on the bus as a mandrel to bend a ring band around. Like I was always making art and I loved it. I was passionate about it. I was like, like romantic artist, kind of early twenties. And when I went to art school, it killed the art in me, that passion. And I'd ask all the other students, you know, why are like, do you still like do art at home? Are you enjoying this? And it's kind of the thought of like, oh, you have to do this. Like, this is what the program is and you'll be better for it after. And as soon as I left that art program, about two weeks after, 
I started loving art again because like I started making things at home that weren't products that I just had to do that I wasn't interested in and I got to guide myself again and um, I renewed that uh, that love of art but that's kind of my my school progress there so you joined this um, was it a rock digging club yeah yeah so you did that and you're going in school the whole time um, that love for uh, rock digging and being a part of it because you ended up joining like the the board of directors for that club right or you were the president board of directors um yeah i redlined myself a lot in my youth i just found the extra energy that sometimes i don't have anymore like still now i i work every day and i feel guilty if i don't work 12 hours a day like even last night i was up till one at my shop working right and i love it like i would rather do that than go on a vacation anywhere you know like i go to all these other countries i'd rather be in a basement shop of some random like workhouse somewhere than be out seeing the views or the any of the architecture or something. So I redlined myself and I joined this this rock club and I got really involved. I was probably there three days a week on top of going to school. Because of the long transit ride to get there, I could read my textbooks or I could take on additional books about the trade, the silversmithing or stone cutting. And why, why those two? Like what got you into that specifically? Process of elimination. So I did this yes man stage of my life when I was younger um, where I just tried all kinds of things. Uh, so you just I, say yes to everything. Yeah, I didn't like watching TV. I was trying to be aversive to that. And like, obviously, like, I'm not going to stick my hand in a machine and if someone tells me, right, like, as long as it was safe. But yeah, I thought like making jewelry was girly, the silversmithing classes when I started that. But I was like, you know what, I'm going to try it. And I ended up loving it, right. But the stone cutting stuff, it was, it was just a calling. Um, I enjoyed it. I actually like I talked to different girls about this. Um, I sometimes enjoyed grinding rocks more than sex with girls, you know, and I literally oh I'd say that to them because grinding rocks, I don't know something about it. It was my meditation. I could go there. I could be in my own thoughts and just um, just something about it. It was like uh, it wasn't erotic for me, but I just I just enjoyed it so much. I was so engaged in it that um, there's other things I tried in my life, like it was a phase or I was doing it with other people or I just didn't enjoy it that much. But stone cutting, I wanted to do when I was alone. Um, and that's kind of one of those things, you know, like, like whatever you do alone defines you kind of things. Rock cutting was one of those ones where I just like I'd walk down the street and I'd be thinking of what I wanted to make next. Right. And so um, it was it consumed me. Right. And uh, and so I just got more and more engaged with it. To, and the club was volunteer led. So that's why I joined the board of directors. Right. They're always asking for volunteers. And so I learned all kinds of things about like the Roberts rules you know, past like uh, old business, new business, going over finances. So I did that. I went on rock, basically rock camp, like digging stones with other people. And it's a lot of retirees that do that. Same thing, like like when I was talking about environmental studies, I'd ask all these other kids to join me at um, at these environmental kind of just NGO, like volunteer events. No one would ever show up, right? And then same with the rock stuff. People would see what I made in school because I was wearing it everywhere, right? Like 10 rings on every finger. I was making things that like attached to my pockets, like money clip style and pendants, like just all kinds of creative stuff. People thought it was so cool. And it actually led me into like modeling, like years of modeling because people have thought I had a unique look. But anyway, I was making stuff no one else ever showed up that was my age. They just never found the time for it. Cutting a stone takes a long time. Like polishing wood or sanding wood, like wood is soft or any other material, clay to sculpt it. But stones are hard, like gemstones that we cut for jewelry, it's harder than steel. So imagine I give you a block of steel and I say, okay, make that into something, right? It's sanding, polishing, and having good craftsmanship. 
it's definitely a task that takes patience. And uh, I don't know if that like, maybe that's me being like, oh, the youth doesn't have patience, but, uh, but it, it does take that and, and discipline to learn it and become good at it. It's not something you can do over a weekend and be like, oh, I know how to do this. It takes time, right? It's a trade. And um, yeah, so most of the people there are retirees that have kind of finished their job and um, just looking for something to do with their, with their spare time, or I guess all their time. And uh, so I got to learn a lot from like my peers stopped being people my age, especially because like I ceased drinking when I was 19, like when I did my backpacking and everything, I'd, I'd stopped before then. So I didn't like partying anymore. And so I, what, I kinda, about, what about drugs? No, not since I was 19. So yeah. High been, school, like anyone. You've been totally sober. You don't drink, you don't do drugs. Sometimes I have a chocolate with liqueur flavor in it, mm -hmm. but other than that, yeah. Good for you. No, I, I have no reason to ever go back to it. Like people can drink around me, smoke around me. I don't have the urge to do it. I also don't have the urge to tell them not to anymore, right? Like I'm just entirely over it. I know it's good for me. They have their own life to live. It's not my, I don't know. They can do what they want and be happy. I do what I want and be happy, you know? And, uh, but yeah, I'm just entirely done with that stuff. And that's part of like why I did this Yes Man stage because I'm like looking for all these new things to engage with in life that are proactive and healthy. And so I tried sports, I tried all kinds of art stuff, but it landed on the the rock stuff I really enjoyed and I kept going back to it. And um, and through investments throughout the years, like, you know, I'd start buying tools for at home and as I'm buying more rock to work with or more expensive rock sometimes, I'd ask myself, like, do I want to keep spending money on this? Like, is it a phase? Am I going to sell all this on Craigslist for 200 bucks? Like the, the hockey stick that I bought for floor hockey or the... Um, basketball that I'm no longer using because I stopped doing drop-in basketball that like through my S-Man stage of trying these new things that were just like there that I'd posted on Craigslist. I'm like, is this a phase? But it got to a point where I realized like, no, like I really love this. I enjoy the peers. And that's one thing too is like, I think because my peers changed and I was uh, surrounded by people that were a lot older that became mentors in a way, not really like for my personal life, but just like they were very helpful and guiding and, um, they just wanted to see me succeed. They weren't competing in business or anything. They had all this knowledge and no one to really give it to. Um, like I said, all retirees. So all I had to do was show up and people would help me and train me and show me. And um, so it was a big help when I started. And it also gave me a sense of, you call it fan, not family, but um, a sense of belonging, right? And especially as I got better at stone cutting, like a sense of reverence and pride in what I did um, because when I stopped drinking and partying, like, like I didn't want to go to people's birthday parties that I knew in school. Right. And so it alienated me. I kind of alienated myself and it also ostracized me when people would talk about what they did on the weekend. And I'd be like, Oh, I was out at this beach pulling plants or I was out getting signatures to save caribou in the rainforest. And I go, Oh, well I drank a whole two six. And you know, like when you're in school, it's just, so I, I got divided from, I think my general age group. And that's, kind of allowed me also to have focus and what I've done and build my business so much because I don't have too many distractions. Um, when I listen to your story, so much of it, like, you know, wasn't into TV, um, didn't drink or, or do drugs past a certain age. Uh, and like, I like you using that term red line. It's like I was constantly involved with something. It's like this uh, burning desire to be involved in life. Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? if you want to get super deep avoidance of other things so we can go as, as deep as we want here you can post this and everything so when i was um younger uh like maybe i don't know 
15 or so. Um, first time I had sex, I got an STI. Screwed me up with sex for my younger years. Um, and it was one, I thought I had it for life, right? And I've told this story to enough people, it's fine. So, uh, so basically, I went a lot of my years abstaining from intimacy with people, right? And um, whether that be just anyone, like, you know, you get to a certain point, like when you're interacting with a girl and everything's going great, and then you kind of have to like make a move or push to the next limit, I would always shy away. And because of that, in my youth, I found things that were excitable in other ways. So drugs, crime, nothing that like is unforgivable, right? Like, thankfully, but um, yeah, I just, I was a teenager without much guidance, much direction, just kind of like the giving up on life thing and just not caring about myself, the people around me. And so at a certain point, it all caved in on itself when I was maybe like 18 or so before I went backpacking. I realized, you know, like I was unhappy to the point of like, like, like I didn't like try suicide or anything, but I was just super unhappy to the point where either like my life goes that direction or not. And so I chose not. And that was part of me getting a backpack was just running away from everything I knew and just trying something fresh. And that's why I went the direction the wind blew, right? Because I was just didn't have guidance looking for anything other than what had what I had been a part in. And um, and it's pretty cool the more I acknowledge the lies I told myself, other people, and forgave myself for them and discussed them with other people, the more doors open in my life and swiftly. And I think the pace at which all those metaphysical doors open is what really caused me to um, appreciate what healthy living is or just positive and, you know, being a good person. Like I realized the value in that you could sum it up in phrases like you get more uh, bees with honey than vinegar, like all those kinds of things. It changed me when I saw how more, how much more receptive people were of who I was, how much more stress I didn't have to have when I was in my head justifying things. Like, so I think that was part of me um, just growing up too, in general. Eventually I confronted the whole STI thing. It ended up just being general warts. But when I was younger and looking on the internet at 14, I thought it was a lifelong thing. So there I was, I actually avoided intimacy for something that goes away after a year and a half, right? Um, but I spent a decade of my life avoiding it. And um, and a big part of... Uh, I'll and get to and actually, you avoided intimacy that whole time. Yeah, well. I probably could... By the time I was 24, I could count the amount of people I had on two hands or like that I'd had sex with and probably even the amount of times, right? Because I just really avoided it. But long story short, part of me like trying to resolve my life and become someone that was attractive to people you know like i didn't know back then what what really was a problem like um like i didn't realize it was me avoiding intimacy but i wanted to become attractive so i wanted to become interesting and uh fun to talk to and whatever good looking or like i think just more the interesting man in the room and, and engaging so i spent a lot of effort on that right that's why i wanted to gauge and engage in things to to become um an interesting person for others. So that's why I started. Now I do all these things for myself more than other people. I realized like that's why I continue to do them. But one of the big things that drove me when I talk about the redlining myself, it'll all give context to this, is I stopped masturbating when I was younger, like when I was maybe 19, 20. And that caused me to like lethargy and all kinds of things went away. My motivation increased. I had so much stress and no way to absolve myself of it. Like I couldn't go drink, stare into a glass. I couldn't 
um, again, just lay back and like have a, a chemical release. I had to resolve things in a way that was sometimes mentally excruciatingly painful because I had to deal with them in the best way. And so I think the, uh, the abstaining from masturbating is a big part of what caused me to go out and do other things. Because again, it's a, it's a taboo subject, but I would be at home sometimes horny and it was like, no, I don't want to do this. I'll find anything else to do. Sometimes just getting up, getting a glass of water because um, I knew water was healthy. Sometimes it was going for a run. Sometimes it was going join a team like distractions, right? And that's kind of like, you call it a yes man phase or anything else, but distractions, 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 same way people I think would get over um, depre depression, right? Is just distract yourself from it until you don't realize you're depressed anymore, right? Probably why I'm a workaholic too, is I just distract myself from everything by being workaholic. But I think it's healthy because, um, because I do genuinely enjoy it. It doesn't take me away from anything else. It's what I want to do. Hopefully that gives some context and some direct answer as to it, why it, I, I get into all these other things. It does. And also it's like, A, like, thank you for sharing. And B, it's like, there's very few really driven people like that really engage in life that I know that haven't had some kind of like pretty significant like trauma when they were younger. And it could go again, but something from like small T trauma to a big T trauma. Most people I know who are like driven and really engaged in life um, have had something. And they kind of resolve that through like wrestling with life a little bit. And I, so I, I think everything you shared there, the interesting thing is like that kind of like I'm, I'm staying at home, I'm abstaining for everything. I'm not having sex. I'm not doing any of the other things. I'm not drinking anything like that. You have no sexual release either with a partner or on your own. You're not drinking, you're not smoking, you're not doing drugs. You're not watching TV. So there's nothing else for that energy except for to create. I got into emotional states where I had to find a thesaurus to figure out the word of what I was feeling. Like it was amazing how my endocrine, cha endocrine system changed and reset because I'd have frustrations or elations, right? And they were to such an extent that I hadn't felt before that I had to like, sometimes it take days of that feeling for me to finally summarize the word of it, right? Yeah. But um, it was addicting in a whole new way. Yeah. And I'll, I'll clarify, I definitely wanted to get laid with other people. I just didn't want to have it alone. Right, right. Okay, so, so you're not in the stage where you're celibate anymore. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So this was like after you after you'd stopped being celibate and you moved back into engaging like that. That's where you started abstaining uh, in the other way. I, I started abstaining from masturbation initially because I thought maybe that was a reason girls weren't attracted to me or like as again, as I was trying to become um, attractive to the opposite sex, I was, sex, I was like, what can I do? All these different things. And I was like, well, if I stop masturbating, the only way I get a release is being with a girl, right? So not only do my own hormones push me to go out and talk to more people, but it's like, if I want to have that release, I have to work for it, right? And it's one of those things where it was so valuable because I learned the value of engaging with women, right? Like I came again from like, I was still young enough to just kind of be like, I wasn't ever like a, um, like a sexist or major like objectifying people, but I think having that push to engage with women, I learned there was so much more and on a deeper level. Cause again, I'd avoided intimacy until that point, like in a deeper, meaningful way. So I think I really gained so much from it just by like talking to girls, like most of me getting over all my issues and stuff. It wasn't counselors or anything like that. It was just random girlfriends listening to me, you know? And so it gave me a lot of appreciation and like, I wish to never, ever objectify a woman, like more than anything, I wish to personify them, you know, like it, 
it added so much value because there you get all this stress and tension of like, you know, like my hormones building up, but like, obviously there's consent and you learn like consent isn't just permission. You want both people to be excited about it. Right. So that's where, you know, I had to be engaging and stuff. And it's so, so I, I learned, um, so much from it. I don't know how to summarize that, but yeah. It's interesting how having like a sense of discipline about whether it's like drinking, like what you put into your body or what you do with your body and any of these things, uh, no judgment call. People can do whatever they want. I, I, I subscribe much the same kind of philosophy of the like, I know what's good, what I want to do, but like, I don't really care what anyone else does. They can do it. I would say not drinking, not doing drugs um, for me has been, I couldn't have done the stuff I've done. If I, if I was drinking, no, I, I wouldn't be alive. Sure. Um, those two things. Uh, but also like, I have like a pretty regimented schedule. Like I'm like, really, I do, you know, I do the podcast, I run a business, you know, I have a family, I play in bands, like I try and take care of myself. So again, I like that term red line. Cause I've always been like that ever since I was, well, I was very lazy when I was young until I had pretty significant trauma. And after that I was never lazy again. And then I was like on it. I have to have a real discipline of how I run my life to be able to do stuff. And one of my friends is like, your life stresses me out from the sidelines, man. He's like, I don't know how you do all this stuff. He's like I do all this stuff because I'm like super into all of it. I don't do things I don't like doing. I only do things I like doing. And it doesn't mean that they're not hard because most of them are extremely hard to do, but I like the challenge. I like doing a good job. I like being precise. All that requires a crazy amount of discipline. And that means I can't have distractions. I can't have toxic relationships. I can't have people around me who make me feel anxious. I can't uh, be indulgent with where I spend my time. I, and like, and also being like a great partner and father is super important and son. So like I have to schedule in time for that. All of it's about discipline. And I think discipline for, for everyone means different things, but discipline is such a, it unlocks so many other things where discipline sounds like it's a restrictive practice. For me, it's been like an elevating practice. Yeah, it's definitely guiding. I think I like, I have reward and punishment some systems for myself, you know, like how a parent would impose, uh, you know, go to your room or something like I've had times, like if I do something that I'm not proud of myself of, I'll go give a hundred bucks to the person I hate most in life to help reinforce that. Like, I don't want to do that again. Right. Cause now it's helping someone that I don't like. There's all kinds of ways to reinforce that discipline system. As far as regimented schedule, I don't write anything down really. I don't use Google calendar, like, but I have my routine, right? So like I wake up and it's like business. Like I don't have the distractions or I don't have family. I don't really have friends. I argue with girlfriends about that all the time. Like, why don't you have friends? And I go, well, I have colleagues and I have people that I meet in passing that I enjoy my time with, but otherwise my work keeps me happy. It's my baby. Like, you know, as I learn about how to look after it and uh, foster it and grow it, that's where I want to spend my time, you know, because I love it so much too. Anyone can work any job and there's always bad days. There's good days. Like um, this morning I was dealing with cops on the phone because of shoplifting. I have to fire people sometimes. Uh, things break in my store, you know, someone will come in and break a $2,000 item and I got to figure out how to resolve this, whether I charge it, like, like all kinds of things, right? Charge them financially. Like my job as like a business owner and like the boss is to deal with all the problems that fall in between the cracks of what I've employed my employees to do, right? They have their standard operating procedures and like anything that goes beyond them is my my responsibility so i my i wake up putting out fires right my shipping person 
um, forgot to put something in a shipment or things broke and I wake up and I check the emails and I go putting out this fire for the person that's angry about that shipment, right? And so every job has good things, bad things about it. But because I love this, all those mountains are just molehills to me, right? Like I'm so tunnel vision on what I want to achieve out of this that they're all just like, like, I don't really notice them. It's just part of what I do, right? And for me to get to make all my dreams come true, which are like, you know, mass producing my jewelry on an even bigger scale and uh, distributing it on a big scale too. Um, I have to, um, my business would plateau without uh, employees. It would plateau without me having the financial sustainability from multiple incomes of various, you know, um, like my hand is in various uh, pies of this business, right? Fossils, uh, jewelry already, manufacture. I cut stones for other people overseas, um, selling the crystals, right? I have art studios. I have about 20 art studios now that I sublease to other people because of uh, my previous storefront, my previous lease responsibility. And like, so without all of that, I would just be a hobby artist, you know? And so I have to take on all those challenges, but it's also fun for me. Like this morning, the thoughts going through my head, like, cause I've had, I work late at night, right? At my shop, sometimes till two in the morning. I've had my vehicle broken into seven times this year, right? Windows smashed, got to deal with the glass cleaning up. I got to learn about, okay, how do I prevent this with sensors and everything? Like other than waiting with a baseball bat outside, right? Like how do I prevent this? Shoplifting, I'm learning, you know, okay, cops, even if I have footage of them stealing stuff, it's not worth anything to police. Like, so loss prevention, what is financially worth engaging in? But what I'm, what I'm talking about is the challenges. When I first started my business, it was like, how to stay afloat, how to generate more revenue than expenses, right? And then next year it was like uh, how to deal with all those expenses and like sorting them, the accounting and just general like business admin, like um, like filing things away, invoice system, because someone, you know, they buy something, but then they don't pick it up for six months and be like, oh, did you pay me for that? You know, having like logistics, right? And so that was like kind of my second year. Third year was like, you know, I started getting employees and I started with my best friend, which don't ever employ your friends, um, you know, and then I like went into hiring people and then you start having to fire people. Right. And, um, and doing that in legal ways and making sure that I'm covered when I do it. Um, and then, so now I've got employees that are hanging around for a while. How do I make them stay around? Right. Incentives in forms that are not financial because maybe I don't have enough money to give them all 60 bucks an hour or something. Right. Like for a minimum wage based job. So it's like, how do I keep them happy here? Um, so workplace culture, things like that. And again, discipline while I'm still the main boss, I don't have HR department. So I got to discipline someone and then hang out with them for the rest of the day. Right. Um, and that's where like philosophy comes in, which, uh, problems do I feel like bringing up and which do I want to just let go? Right. What's worth me creating confrontation in the workplace. Um, other employees come to me with the issue. So-and-so said this, so, you know, I have to resolve it. Right. Like I said, it's a lot like my child. I got to look after it and deal with all these different things. So now, you know, this morning I'm on the phone with the cops and I'm realizing, I think this year I'm learning about safety and security, right? For my employees and things like that. You know, parents pulling up with kids at the back loading dock area. Or my employees have to go home at late, uh, sometimes alone, right? They're locking up. And if there's things like that, it can be scary for some people, right? Women, male alike. So in my head, I go, okay, these are my new challenges this year. I gotta maybe sign up for a loss prevention class or I'll go talk to the, uh, local community police and get advice. Like, so all these things go with owning the business. And 
yeah, my dream world, I could just make things and I could just go pick any random material and take any machines, but machines cost money and stones cost money and having a place to do it. And so, um, so I have to fund it all. And, and by having this, these businesses, I'm able to do that. I watch a lot of other people do what I do and they're starving artists because um, either they lack the drive we talk about, that redlining thing, or they don't want it as much, right? Like, um, I don't want money in life. Like, we can go look at my car out back. It's just a beater car, right? Like, I'm rock rich and I, I like investing in my business, but um, my home is minimalist, you know? Like, like everything that matters to me is a business. I don't want money. I don't, I make jewelry, not wearing any, you know? I got gold laying all around in my studio. I don't feel the need to wear it. I wanna do something with my life that only hard work can attain. I don't wanna do something that I can buy into or that money can buy. I wanna achieve that because like that emotional distance or um, I would say like mental distance, that spread of where I was to who I can become and dealing with logistics like of orders that are, you know, I wanna make orders of 200,000 pieces or 20,000 pieces for different stores, right? And I wanna to get to that point and have to deal with those kinds of things and the frustrations that come with that and resolve them because it builds character, right? Like anything I learn in the workplace, like I said, disciplining my employees when I'm in a relationship, same thing. Do I wanna argue with this over my partner? Do I not want to? Um, so all those things that I take from my workplace or even from my relationships, they're all cross-connected, you know? So um, I think it just, helps me become a better person. That's yeah. kind of why I want to do it, yeah. Well, let's go Let's go to becoming a business. So you'd said to me before we, we'd started, we were talking about like the, you know, you deal with or at least interact with gems that are worth serious, serious money. And you have access to things that someone who's like the idea of like being a rock collector or a gem collector or something they have on your table is kind of like what a neophyte would be into. It just looks good. You have an expertise and an access to a world that few of us even know exist. Mm -hmm. So what was the gateway from being kind of a hobbyist artist and creating things to being like, oh, I'm going to get into this deeper world and learn about it and really start interacting with it? What was the gateway for that? I was making art for probably four or five years. And, and what did it, by the way, just sorry to interrupt, what happened? You finished your degrees and you went to that uh, fine art program, but then ended up leaving. So it would have been about... 24 at the time and I've been making stuff for maybe three years now two years now something like that it was 25 when I left school so I took a job that was like not a passionate job just a job to make money actually when I got out of school right away like I got hired as soon as I, I graduated from environmental studies I got hired that day from a company but it wasn't fulfilling it was like waste management and in my head I was like, I didn't go to university to become a glorified garbage man, you know, nothing against it, just not what I wanted to do. And so I like, I continue with school and work at the same time. I eventually like taught kids bike safety as that job that I didn't really want to do. And then like I was making money from it, but at some point I was, uh, I was just kind of like struggling, struggling. My father passed away and uh, I got inheritance. And so I think that was a real testament to like, I was doing what I wanted to do because I didn't change anything in my life. I just did what I loved more fully. So I took the inheritance, which wasn't that much. It was a decent amount, but not that much. And uh, I couldn't buy a house with it or anything, right? So I just, I went to India and I bought a bunch of stones there and 
before I went to India, about a year before I'd started sending parcels of stones overseas and um, getting them back and it was expensive, right? It was like, like the cutting costs by the time I paid for shipping and everything, it was expensive. And I knew like if I just went to one of these cutting capitals in the world, I could probably get cutting to happen cheaper. Because at this point in my hobby, still a hobby, I'd amassed so much stone that like, like even in like five lifetimes, I wouldn't be able to cut it all. I was out digging stone. I was buying it at gem shows, local gem shows back then. Um, but I just, and estates, someone would pass away and I could go buy their rock collection for 200 bucks because, you know, someone would be like, I just want my garage back and all the, you know, all the rocks have been in here for 10 years. Like, so it was very cheap to buy estates sometimes. And so I had all this stone and I had a machine shop in my apartment, right? Like my landlord hated me. I got rid of my couches and everything. Like didn't have anywhere to sit except my bedroom. Um, so it was just like, like nonstop machines. I couldn't, I was like getting in trouble for making noise, but I went to India with, with, uh, some money. I bought some rocks there and I started seeing the production side. Like I went there to try and get rocks cut and it was like, Hey, I'm Adam. I have this backpack full of rocks. Will you cut it for me? Like, that's literally how it started. I read an article online, but there really wasn't much about mass production. So I just bought a plane ticket, went there and figured it out. I spent two months there, like, like meeting all these people going into stores. What I had read online that it was 3 million people, half of them in the gem and jewelry industry. In, wh in which city? Jaipur in Rajasthan in India. So I figured it's probably got the infrastructure, right? So I just went there, figured it out. And that's how I started to meet the cutters that work for me now. And when I go there to mass produce my jewelry still, I'll just subcontract a factory and have a whole team like, and we'll crank out like thousands of pieces in a, in a probably a week, sometimes two weeks. So I went there, I bought a bunch of stones, came back. And at this point I'd started doing flea markets too. Cause as you're making things as a hobbyist and making them consistency consistently, like I was, I had like a hundred rings at home. And back then I'd wear them on every finger. And like I said, jewelry everywhere, but like I couldn't just keep adding to this bowl of rings at home. So I was so aversive to business when I started, I really didn't want to do it. I thought it would ruin the passion for me. And at the beginning it did because it was frustrating when I put all the work into like setting up a table at a craft show or something and I'd like not sell anything. Some days I wouldn't sell anything. Sometimes I'd make 200 bucks. It was like, it kind of was like not fun. Business wasn't fun. I did it a bit more and I, I went to India. I bought some stuff. I came back and the stuff I sold, I made more money in the next trade show I did. More, more money in that trade show than I made in any other show in my life and it was only four thousand dollars i made but i was like like when you're broke artist you're like wow that's a lot that's my rent and everything for the month right in one day so that got me hooked and uh, i took the rest of the inheritance i had through a series of figuring out where i wanted to go i ended up renting a warehouse and so i subdivided the whole back of the warehouse to help cover the rent because i had enough for deposit and some minor renovations and that was it so when I got the warehouse, I got it so that I could have a workshop because I wanted to like make more things, be creative, make my jewelry and like go back to India and make more of it. So I got a space where I could move all those machines out of my apartment and make more noise, experiment, use dangerous chemicals, sandblasters, things that I definitely couldn't do in an apartment, bigger rock saws that make a lot of noise. When I got the warehouse, there was this old office space in the front and it had windows, there was some parking there. And I was like, oh, I guess, you know, I could like make this a rock shop and if people want to come buy things, I'll just come to the front and play shopkeeper. And I did like in the beginning, I'd come out with my apron that I use because everything's like being cut with water and stuff and I get splashed all the time. So I'd have an apron on and then come to the storefront and help people. And uh, all I had back then was like rough cutting grade rock. And like when I bought estates and like really crappy crystals, 
people would come in and say, do you have crystals? Like, what about crystals? Your rock shot, where are the crystals? Anymore? Like, are you going to get crystals over and over? So I went to um, a trade show in Denver. I hadn't been to Tucson yet. I went to Denver gem show. I filled my car. I probably spent like $10,000 there uh, and filled my whole car full of rocks, drove all the way there, drove all the way back with them. And I sold so many of them right away and it like got me hooked. And then I started going to more of these trade shows, Tucson and Arizona, uh, Quartzsite in Arizona. Like last year I was in Munich and Germany. I've been to Thailand now for cutting stuff, but I started traveling more and more. And at those trade shows, like the biggest gem shows in the world, I would network with people. So sometimes I could order from them too and they'd ship me things throughout the year. So then I started buying more and more and I realized, well, I can't fit all this in my car. And I had to learn about palletizing and less than truckload. Now I know about like full truckload, like I bought semi trucks worth. I had, I just started buying more and more. And because again, like I just had my same old apartment and I don't have family to look after, like no expenses other than me. Um, and I don't drink and I don't have habits that cost a lot of money. Um, any money I made from selling the rocks, I just reinvested. Right. And I just kept building it and building it and it just kind of grew from there but that's kind of the hook is like when people just started buying crystals and to be honest i was never into crystals when i got into it other like the customers were and like it doesn't take a smart businessman to be like whatever the customers want i'll go get right it's what they want not what i want i really didn't get hooked on mineralogy and learning about crystals until i went to it was a it was the first time i went to the tucson show i stayed for the end show Tucson is this massive event. It attracts like half a million people in the span of a month. It started with one show, I don't know, 80 years ago, 60 years ago, like one venue. And it's grown to about 80 venues now, like different show promoters. And people are like, well, why would I pay the rent on a venue? I'll just get my own warehouse. So the city's full of, full of warehouses. The storage locker spaces in that city are rented out. So you go there and all the storage locker gates are open. It's just like filled with cabinets and you go through those places like there's more than 80 venues when you think about it, right? So it's just so much rock. And, but I went to this one show where um, it was, I can't remember the theme of it, but there was maybe like a, think of a gymnasium size or, or bigger of specimens that were all very, very expensive. And like the cheapest one there was like maybe that big and it was like 30,000 US. And they had like armed security all around and there was specimens that were half million dollars, million dollars. And I went to this show and that was the first time I'd seen minerals in a light where i was like oh these are like nice like this is like like you can't there's no denying how pretty this is right like when you're gonna spend a million or half a million on a rock it's probably pretty nice right <laughs> like so so that was like when i got what we call the rock bug right where i was hooked and i started getting into the hobby of collecting minerals myself so then i'd go to more shows and i found different venues where you could go into a room like the size where i now and there'd be three million or more five million dollars worth of minerals in this room and then you'd walk next door and the next room would have ten million dollars worth and like specimens there were world class right like where you look at it, it's like like i work hard my business is growing fast, but this has to be family money. Like, I don't know how they afforded all this, right? Because Tanzanite's like this big and like, you know, those crystals you see on Instagram that get millions of views. Well, these ones are better, right? Like, so I got to see all these kinds of things. Uh, if you ever go to Tucson, Mineral City, that's the one you got to go to. Hard Rock Summit in Denver, that's a new one that started another venue there. So I got to go to these places and see those things. Um, same with like the India, I kept going back to India. And as I got to know people, um, like I'd sit in the factories all day long and sometimes stone cutters would come in to like try and sell the factory stones. And sometimes because I knew that the owners, they'd say, hey, Adam, come look at this rock. And someone would like out of their pocket, just unwrap like a hundred thousand dollar emerald or something, right? Like giant and 
beautiful glowing like and I'd be like, how much does that cost? And they'd write down the number in rupees and I'd do the conversion. Like, So like I've seen a lot of cool rocks. I don't own million dollar crystals. Maybe one day, you never know. I've gotten known in the rock world when I go down there. There's only so many Canadians that go to the, the US shows. And because of my buying power now, like when I go now, I'm six figures plus. So you start to get noticed. Like I've had times where I go, okay, I like all this. Like how much for your whole booth? Or I'll buy all these tables, right? And so it's fun like it's a pretty fun flex and like i wish in high school someone could have told me like i could make a job out of going on shopping trips like no one said you could go just spend like a hundred thousand dollars on a shopping trip and it'd be part of business and you the write-off isn't the fun part right it's just the fact that like you know i go there and like you're flicking through like you know like even my employees sometimes i come back from the bank before i'm like have you ever held you know x amount of money and they go what like so it's it's fun. It definitely it's it's also sometimes scary because the banks like like are you sure you're getting back to your car okay and like, but normally people wouldn't guess that I would be spending that money right. So I can usually get away with it at the at the trade shows and I spend it all in like the first three days too right. And then I'm going into visas and everything next right. But yeah, I'm known there because I buy bulk for my store and also like you know throughout like I talked about when I was just making things as a hobby and I was like, am I going to turn around and sell these few machines on Craigslist? Like if you see my machine shop now, like I'm invested in it, not only in my machine shop, but my storefront, like there's no way I can just get out of the business at this point. It's an addiction. It's my livelihood. It's my calling, you know, it's my passion, all these things. I am not even based on the level of knowledge about gems, rocks, minerals, anything. I have no knowledge of them outside of like, I know, what I like, what looks nice. You know, I, I have a, a partner who I love and appreciate and who loves gems. And so I will buy things for her from your shop or, or other shops, but I know very little about it. One of the things that I know only through popular culture and a little bit through politics, uh, global politics, concerns around mining practices for, for the environment, but also for populations within countries where like stones or gems could be coming from. So how have you worked on that? Because I, I know you're a highly principled person. What's been your approach to making sure you feel good about how things come to you? I'll give you, this will be a long explanation. When I first started making things, I go to these markets and, you know, I wouldn't sell stuff because let's say I wanted 120 bucks for a ring that I put three hours into, but they could go buy the one from India for 30 bucks. So people would come to my booth, they go, oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Or my stone carvings. Wow, that's so unique. And I'd see them leaving the show with the $20 carving with scratch marks and everything in it, like mass produced. And it aggravated me so much. Compliments don't pay the bills, right? As an artist, that doesn't help. I realize if you can't beat them, join them. That was one of the major factors of why I went to India. And of course, in my head, I'm going, well, if I go there, am I exploiting these the labor of like, you know, cheap labor? So for example, India is like a dollar an hour kind of thing, like average wage for a stone cutter is 200 to 300 bucks a month kind of thing. And that's salary based. I pay by weight, which is a way to be more um, more fair to the cutters because if they want to work more, they get paid more. But basically I thought like, am I going there and taking advantage of them? And at some point I realized if I don't go there, they get none of my money, right? So by going there, I at least am supporting them in some way. And I've been in factories where they do like multi-million dollar orders. There's one guy there that I've gotten to know. He was talking to me when he talks, I shut up, right? Because his level of business is like the biggest in the world. So when I hear him talk about the ethics behind what he does, because he's one of the top 10 biggest factories in India and, and one of the biggest in the world. 
So major jewelry companies come in and there's other factories that have lineups of all the same machines, hundreds of workers under the same roof, right? They can meet any timeline. They can make every ring the exact to the precise measurement. So for, for marketing, it's all the same. So at some point, how do these major jewelry like buyers pick what factory they're going to use? And they base it off the ethics. Do those factories have females employed? Is there a paid vacation now? So a lot of people talk about, oh, corporations are bad for the world, but those corporations in the jewelry industry are actually affecting how these other countries are changing the way they treat their employees, right? So for the ethics of how humans are treated, that trickles down too into the cottage industry, which is the word for like smaller scale business there. So it was, it's really cool listening about that or listening and hearing him talk about those those things. Basically to get those contracts, they have to have good like human relations with their employees. The other thing, the environmental aspect, I get asked this question, not often, but when I do, people ask, you know, what about the harmful effects to the environment? And I say, okay, but you're asking me that with t-shirts that are made with heavy dyes in countries where you've got labor that's not slave labor, but you've got child labor and all kinds of things too. And you found my place on a cell phone that was put together in another country you know, with batteries that are using lithium that are being depleted with, you know, like, so I'm like, it's a bit hypocritical to well, like, why do rocks have to be the, up on a pedestal and nothing else does, right? Mm -hmm. And I kind of explain that to them first and they go, oh yeah, I see your point. And then I say, and just so you know, there's no harmful effects with crystals for mining in, in the environment. So I kind of then tell them that when you're mining crystals, you can't blast and you can't do large scale mining. Cause if you set off explosions, guess what happens to all those crystals? They shatter, right? Same with rough rock for cutting. You send fractures throughout the stone. So you reduce your yield of, of high grade stone. So to mine crystals and fossils and things like that, it's pretty much all like hammer and chisel. Sometimes they do small scale blasting and tunnels, but they're not moving mountains. Like I've been to major mining company summits and their slogans are, we move mountains, right? Like that's their, that's their caption when you're mining stone that you can crush up for ore, whether it's copper or, or gold or things like that. They're just crushing all the rocks. So they're, they're just demolishing everything, right? Oil, you see what they do is strip mining, fracking, like the scale of what they can do to impact the environment is so much bigger. Hammer and chisel, there's only so much mountain you can move. Like, I don't know, like I built dirt jumps as a kid. Like you can only dig so much hole in a day before you get tired. Some of these countries, it's pretty hot out. You can only do so much labor in a day, right? So the environmental effects are very, very minimal. Um, just because of the fact they have to go slowly. You also mentioned before we were rolling, um, you know, that you still you still go out like hunting for your own uh, your own stuff as well. So people talk about this all the time. Why is this so expensive? Why is that so expensive? There's nothing ethical about paying me a dollar for a rock I jeopardized my life for. Like I've had times. One time I was in this mountain in Colorado. And I was like scaling the side of a cliff with like a big drop and I have a backpack on with my tools and stuff and it's raining now because I stayed too late. Now it's raining. The, the cliff is slippery and I'm scaling it like for my life. And that was when I realized I'm like, there's nothing ethical about making me scale a mountain and trying to argue about me over the price of the rock I got out of that. Especially like if you're trying to like argue from $3 to $2, like just pay me the money that it's worth, you know? Yeah. So even ethical mining locally, like for the labor force too, people don't realize, like I've stopped taking commission work in jewelry too, just because the ethics of, you know, you make something for someone and like, I'll do it well, it'll be nice. I know it'll never fall apart. I did exactly what they asked and like, oh, but 
like it's more than I, I thought and instead of 500 it's 600 and I'm like yeah but the craftsmanship was good what I gave you initially was an estimate I laid it all out for you like it's aggravating sometimes as an artist to deal with that it's not just overseas and it's not just environment sometimes it's directly to me around that piece like uh people not charging the worth of things. I've got this engineer and producer and uh, he was on the podcast a while ago and we were talking about that challenge when you're self-employed and you're a creator. You know, so Jesse's an, an engineer and a, and a producer. He helps mold people's music. People's desire for something super high quality is there, but their disconnect from it's super high quality and this is what I feel I should pay for that. There is a like insane disconnect between those two things. So how have you scaled that as, a, as an artist? It's, it's a management thing where you have to have everything laid out beforehand for the price and they either take it or leave it. Like you can't um, surprise them with it later. You have to stay true to what it's worth too, even when you set your price initially. Like when I give someone an estimate, sometimes I go, well, it's probably only worth, let's say 200 bucks, but for me to want to do the job, 400. Because otherwise it's like for me, 200 bucks to be honest, like, I can go stand in my storefront and make that in 10 minutes, right? Like I'll just wait there and someone will hand that to me. Yeah. So for me to go do a project for someone, I go, ah, but for me to actually want to do it, like there's all these other factors. And so I have my price. And also it's, it's a leverage point where I don't need the work. If they want me to do it, this is my price. And I hold true to that. And maybe it's an artisan thing where like, if people aren't paying your price, moonlight and something else, like I have my value and it's, and after, yeah, after so much abrasion towards it, I go, you know what? They're just cheap. Like that's what, and there's other people that do, I only do gold work, right? Because with gold work customers, they pay more, right? Um, they expect it to be $4,000 instead of 400. If someone wants to do a silversmith project, they go, oh, well, in Mexico, they do it for $12. And like, no, I'm sorry. Like not what I do here, go to Mexico, you know? And it's, yeah. Well, it's something going back to it. Jesse, I think this is a really good point, which is like, because it's not just the doing of it. It's like, well, you want me to do it. And I've done this thing a hundred times or a thousand times or 2000 times, you know, like, so for example, for me, um, there's only cer certain coaching I'll take on. Um, and I love working with people. I love helping people. But like, I'm not in a place in my coaching career where I'm going to work with like a mid-level manager on their physical presence. And I'm just not going to do it. If someone came to me and said, we'll pay you this astronomical amount of money to do it. I'd be like, is it still worth my time to do that? Because yeah, like, you know, I want the company to do well. I want to do well financially, but like, is it even worth my, my, my time to do that? And am I even going to do a good job if I'm not that interested in it? Um, Jesse said something I thought was so great. He was like, well, that's kind of like the life cycle of business though. It's like, as you kind of go up in skill and you can charge more, you can say no to a job or someone can say no to your price, but then they just punt it down to the person who's a little bit more junior than you, who's still coming up, who wants to do it for that price. And it's a challenge for them. They're excited. And that's that kind of cool ecosystem of business where it's like the more, the more skilled and the more you charge, you can go in that direction, but it also creates opportunities for, for a consumer or for someone coming up that can say, yeah, I'll do it for that price. Yeah. I farm a lot of workout. People want me to do something like a ring for, 110 bucks or something. I say, no, this guy's a friend of mine that buys stones from my store. Go see him. He'll do it for that price. And I say, the craftsmanship's going to be mediocre, but the price is cheap. And then I write down another number and I say, these people are expensive, but it'll be top quality, right? Here's your options. And so 
Yeah, I, I get that. And definitely it evolves, right? Like for me too, when I bought my, or not bought, I rented my first warehouse and I was trying to make bills. I did all kinds of jobs I didn't want to do because losing the warehouse or doing the jobs I didn't want to do, right? So like I started with, you know, recutting stones for the jewelry industry, industry doing jewelry repair, teaching courses. Like I, I hate teaching. I'm very, very good at it. Mm-hmm. I like I'll make a curriculum for you so you don't have to write things down, resource guides and everything so that you can concentrate better in the class when I'm teaching. I'll have all the tools ready for you, but, and I have the information, I know what I'm doing. I don't enjoy it because I'm at a skill level where everyone that comes to me is beginners and I don't learn anything new by teaching them, right? So it's unfulfilling. So I don't like teaching, but in the past I did it because I needed the money, right? And now, like you said, yeah, I can say no to that, right? We took a quick break there. You said, hey, I want to come back to mining. So what did you want to mention about mining? Yeah, you you asked me like uh, like about the sites I've been to. So just from rock hounding, you know, I joined that rock hounding group when I was younger and they took me to sites in the beginning. And I learned a bunch with them, but then I started going out on my own and I have another buddy like that's locally that I dig with in BC. We split gas money and stuff um, and just it's just fun going out with someone, right? Now I, I travel a lot to US. So let's say there's a rock show in Denver. I'll fly to something like Wyoming and then I'll just rent a vehicle there for a week before the show, drive around, go to all these different sites and then end up at the Denver show and like unload all the rock I found. But I've been to all kinds of places now, like over 200 mines or so. So, and there some are mines where it's like a genuine mine where they got equipment and you're paying fee digs, so you pay by pound of what you take out of there, or you pay per hour to be using the site. Like um, there's a sunstone mine in the U.S. You pay 200 bucks an hour to be on the conveyor belt. There's Nevada, you can dig black opal. You pay 800 bucks a loader bucket, and it's like gambling. They they take a loader scoop out of the bank, dump it in front of you. You get the whole day to go through it. You get what you get, right? If you get nothing, tough luck. It's 800 US, right? So sometimes that's a lot, but it's kind of one of those vacation things where I'd rather spend money on that than uh, I don't know what other people would do, like uh, hang gliding or whatever they want to do, right? Like my thrill is going through that pile of rock. I like that you went to hang gliding first. (laughs) (laughs) Who's hang gliding right now? I was thinking beach, but I'm like, what do people do at a beach? Beach is free. (laughs) Someone hang gliding right now, listen to the podcast is like, how dare you? (laughs) Everyone gets, everyone has their own own thing, you know? Um, Okay. So let's, let's go to the store. Um, You know, so Monica and I have like two of our favorite stores in Vancouver, our antique warehouse, which is like right beside you. And then your store. And Shout out to Antique Warehouse, homies. <laughs> love you guys. We love going to both, right? So we'll go to Antique Warehouse and and like we'll both nerd out hard and be in there talking, chatting it up, having a great time, get some stuff. And then we'll go over to your store and Monica's nerding out and I'm just kind of like, you know, taking it in. And, but what I'm taking in is the people interactions when I'm there. From a people interaction space, um, when I was a kid, when I was in college, I worked at a record store. And working at a record store was such an interesting thing for a kid taking psychology because people would come into a record store and be very often nervous because they didn't want like the record store guy to be mean to them or like make fun of the music, you know, like Jack Black in uh, High Fidelity. And I made it my my job when I was like working at a record store was just to be cool to people and make people feel welcome and comfortable because it can be kind of scary like going to a record store and like you're in a par- place of culture and maybe you're just getting into music or maybe you're just like a little nervous that people are going to like be rude to you. So whenever I'm at the store, uh, at, at your store, I always take in like the culture there is cool. Like every, it's everything's super accessible. Everyone's really, really nice. Everyone's super willing to like answer your questions. 
you've created a really cool vibe of the store. Did that happen by accident or did it happen with intention? It's what I would want when I go into a place. Like my appearance through time, especially when I'm in like grubby shop clothes, mm -hmm. sometimes I don't, don't get treated nicely or there's a stigma there, you know? Every time I go through the border, I get checked, things like that. Like, so um, even when I joined the rock clubs, I said a lot of them were really kind to me, took me in. There was a lot of other people that looked at me and they're like, what's he gonna steal here? You know, like I deal with, because of my appearance, a lot of the, the controversy and I don't like, I don't want people to feel that way in my store. I also enjoy the thrill of like being somewhere you wanna be. We're a destination shop, right? So people have driven there sometimes an hour, sometimes three hours. Some people see us online and it's, you know, they live in the Okanagan, but they're finally in Vancouver and they make the time to come to see us, right? So there's this buildup, they get there and they wanna walk through the door and have an enjoyable time. It also helps with sales if they're having fun, right? But just genuinely, I don't wanna to go to a place where I'm stressed and I'm making, like whether it's my employees or the customers feel like, like stressed or unwelcome, there's no need to, you know? So definitely it's, it's intent. Like even when I hire uh, my employees, the big thing I go through with them is um, just be welcoming. Like that's a big part of their job. They need to know about rocks, but like that's about half of it. And the other half is just like being a normal person, like greet people, figure out whether they want to be left alone and, and, or if they're with a, you know, if they're with a girlfriend, let them have their time with that friend. Maybe they're on a first date. Like don't be there hanging out with them. Like, let them have their moments. You know, if it's someone that has a lot of questions about rock, like just, we're just there to facilitate, right? So people come in, the rocks sell themselves. We don't have to be salesmen. That's the beauty of it is we, like I never, I tell my employees, if someone doesn't want to buy something, they don't have to buy it, right? Like we have thousands of rock varieties in the store. They'll pick the one they want. If they're here to buy something, they'll find it, you know? So I tell them not to ever push for a sale. Um, and yeah, just be welcoming, inviting. And it's kind of one of those things too, where our atmosphere, 80% of my customers come for metaphysical reasons, right? So I get customers that are there because they've lost a loved one and they're finding meaning or they're trying to find a way to talk to the loved one through a stone, whether they think it's going to help them connect through an ethereal way. They are, um, dealing with addiction, like, um, Amethyst for centuries has been known as the stone that keeps people sober, right? As the metaphysical meaning. People come into that store, not all of them, but many of them with traumas or challenges, difficulties, sometimes even just a guilty boyfriend that cheated and they've got to buy a gift of jewelry, whatever it is, right? But not everyone is there to have an exciting time. So that's part of being um, open to the customers too and just kind of guiding them through the store. So it's it's one of those things where you just free flow with the customers and you have to have like that ability to be an extrovert, but also just to read people and what they want in there. Right. So I look for that in the employees resumes, like having been an employer for so long, people lie on their resumes. I see it all the time. Um, resume means nothing to me at this point. Like I have to meet someone, talk to them. And because now I've realized too, I got to hang out with this person all, all the time. And, um, we have to agree on things. They have to respect my authority when I ask them to do something, right? Like I have times, some of my employees think I'm curt because I come in and I give them short sentences of I need this done and I'm very directive and I'll say, this needs to get done. It is a priority. This needs to get done. It is not a priority. I just need it done by the end of the day. And sometimes they say, oh, you're very condescending because you over explain. 
but I've learned to over explain because if I under explain, I come back and it's not done properly, right? And so now I say, yeah, but I over explained everyone. It's not you. I just tell you all this information because when I come back, I want to make sure the job is done well. And so sometimes I have to explain it to people because a lot of my employees haven't been in the, in the uh, management role and they don't understand that um, people will let you down, right? And you have to work with people. It's something that I don't have control over another person. I can just be there to facilitate for them. So not only do I want my employees to be sound and just their charisma, and I don't want them to be shy. So I need competent employees, right? So when I when I hire people, yes, it's something I'm looking for. Like it's a it's a key part of an interview with them is I'm looking to make sure as I'm asking interview questions, are they giving me one word answers? Am I having to pull teeth to get things from them? Do they know themselves well? If I ask them a personal question, like is it one sentence or can they elaborate on things? Can they guess where my next question is going? So I'm looking for all that because yeah, a big part of their job is making that shopping experience fun for people that show up. Heck yeah, well, you, well done on that. Um, so you didn't have really like boss experience before, right? But you went from having a very small storefront, which is where we first met and like first checked out the shop, to having, do you say it's 6,000 square feet? And it's a serious shop. Like anyone going into that, it would be like, holy, I did not expect this. And uh, you had mentioned, or someone there had mentioned you were moving into a new space. Like I thought like double the size or something. And, and for any, uh, for audience who wasn't, who didn't get a chance to see the old location, it was, it was like just a small, small little place. It wasn't much bigger than the room we're in, in right now. Like at least the storefront part Maybe of it. 600 square feet total, yeah. something like that. So you went up from, from around 600 to 6,000. That's a huge scale up in terms of size, uh, in terms of staff, like everything about it so bring on the challenges <laughs> well i was going to say had the business grown to a place where the business required that or was there a i'm going to shoot big and make it work both like i said i got that small storefront i had art studios throughout the back of my old warehouse mm -hmm. But every time an artist moved out i was like great more storage space so i started filling all those storage spaces with rocks and I was making enough in that small storefront to compensate the rent at that point. But um, but it was just kind of like rock that I was buying that was just sitting in boxes and you can't sell it when it's in a box. I'd do wholesale and things like that and bring them back there. But it was getting to the point where you'd take one box down and another one would fall. Like it was dangerous for the employees. You'd take one thing out, another thing breaks. And um, so that was getting stressful. It was difficult to like just find things. The store was small and we were selling so many rocks that like we were restocking almost like it was a regular thing every day to just restock shelves with items. Like I think in 2001, when I do the math, I sold about 200,000 rocks, like wow. units of rock, like wow. units of rock. So, and some of that's wholesale, but it just like the amount of transactions we were doing and the volume we were shifting through, like, because before too, like I put all these art studios in the back with the hallway down the center. Now I was getting pallets showing up like, like sometimes eight pallets at once. And then two weeks later, another five pallets, like pallets were coming in because we were moving maybe a, a pallet a week kind of thing. And I was, like I said, just reinvesting the money in rocks. So I was growing the, the stock. And so we had to try and like, we had to unload all the pallets and hand bomb it all through like a, the long warehouse because I couldn't fit the pallet jack through there and stuff. And it just got to the point where like, it was too difficult to like logistically, I hadn't designed the business to be that big, right? Like it was just one of those things where 
I looked at my, my cost per square foot and then I was like, oh, it's a small gamble to take to do this rock shop, right? Like there's, it's not a big risk, but it just grew way beyond what I ever expected. And so I was like, okay, hey, we got to do this better. And I started shopping around for other places. And then that storefront in the same complex became available, good visibility, easy move. I knew the landlords, you know, I had rapport, like I'd pay my rent on time every day or every month for the last three years or four years. So when I asked them about renting it, they're like, well, there's a lot of people interested, but we'll give you three days because we like it. Like that was one of our favorites. They're like, we'll give you three days to decide. And so there I had three days and it was a huge commitment because before all my rent was subsidized by the artists and stuff too. So any money I was making was kind of just profit. People come into my store and they think my rent is, you know, they'll be like, what is this rent? Like $2,000 or something like my it's add another zero. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it's, it's a big commitment for me to be like, well, like I'd have to make more money too, to be able to afford all this, like for my expenses are going to increase. And then renovations, like I had money set aside for renos and stuff. Like, I think it was just the entrepreneur mindset where I was like, let's do it. You know, like you just jump in and just make it work. You know, yeah. there's no, there's no failure until you accept failure. Right. So I did it. And, um, Part of me too, like I went through all these challenges when I first started my business, like getting um, renovation permits and like building permits for my initial warehouse, nightmare, right? Like I'll always have a bone to pick with Vancouver City because on their website, it's like, we're here to help and there. And you call the Vancouver City Building Development Office, their greeting message starts with, we will not tolerate abusive language and blah, blah, blah. If you use that, we will hang up. Like, like that's not a great greeting to start with, but I had so many frustrations with them. Like they cost me tens of thousands of dollars when I started my business. My old business had a wheelchair accessible washroom that I had to build there. If you go to old business, there's a curb out front without a wheelchair ramp, right? So they made me put a wheelchair accessible washroom in a building that doesn't have a wheelchair ramp, right? Like all these things that just like would build frustration in anyone. Rent was expensive for me and like the, the building inspector read the drawings wrong and made me redo the drawings over a long weekend. Took him another two weeks to read them again for him to just be like, oh, oh yeah, that was on there the first time, sorry. And like, who do you think pays those two months of empty rent while I'm waiting, right? Like, I remember there was a moment where I was walking into the Vancouver Building Development Office. I was so frustrated. I wanted to go back to like my youth where I just wanted to throw a brick through their window. I'm like, maybe once a month, I'll just go there, put a hood up, throw a brick through their window. Like, obviously I'm an adult, I know better, but I just had that much frustration where those were my intrusive thoughts of how I felt about the city, right? I got through it all. I'm like, I'm never doing that again. Never like, you know, cause I have, I tell people like, oh, I thought starting a business, like I thought there'd be expenses, but I never realized that many, right? It was like jumping in water with piranhas when I started my business, like all kinds of bills left, right and center. Um, so I was like, I'm never like doing that again with the city. That was the most expensive, most like, just horrible experience now i got to do it again right so <laughs> and on a bigger scale right so and i got to do it during covid when building supplies are four times as expensive steel wood all that is way more expensive but i had to do it and i had three days to decide i did it we did renovations and of course it took the city four months to approve my building permits something that happens they were simple building permits other cities do it in about three days so i'm paying four months of empty rent Again, $20,000, add that up for four months for just nothing, right? Just waste some money. People come into my store often and they say, wow, you're so lucky. And I understand they're saying like, they appreciate the space, they're amazed. But the lucky part is like, I've been hospitalized overseas. I've had broken bones doing this. I have blood, sweat. I work like 12 hours a day, like 
compromised relationships, you know, an employee quit. Now I'm having to cover them in the store. And like, so, and then in my spare time, I'm catching up on the admin work. I've had relationships that have been compromised by it. Like people that I've really loved, you know, and I've lost them. Um, family, like to be able to scale my business. Like I have, I don't have family. I don't have like all those kinds of things that other people have in their life. Right. It's, a lot of challenges and again they're like worthwhile to me and they pardon me and all that but it's um it's something that i think if people don't own their own business or haven't invested like that into one i don't think they recognize the commitment it takes you know and the toll it can sometimes take on us like i said like this morning like yesterday i'm dealing with uh with someone that shoplifted and it's almost like someone breaking into your home right and stealing something and it's like having that happen multiple times, the invasiveness, just the, the disrespect of it, like having to deal with that and then seeing another customer and wondering, are they shoplifting? Do I treat them that way? Like, you know, how do I trust all the other people? Like all these things that you have to learn to overcome. And when people come in and say, oh, you're so lucky. Sometimes I'm like the financial stress. Like I've had times sometimes where, like I said, I'm spending six figures on rocks. Other times where I can't afford to put gas in my car because I spent too much on rocks and now I got to pay it all, right? Like, so all those things, sometimes I've had like rent, I've been like, like it's within like a few hundred bucks of so that checks clearing, you know, like, so I have all those times too. And then I have times where I'll make a day where someone comes and spends 30 grand. I'm like, oh, back on top, you know? Right. Like, so it's like, um, it's stress and all those things. Like, um, like I said, dealing with disciplining employees. So it's not luck, but. Um, well, as we're tucking into the tail end, something of the interview, there's there's something I, I wanted to touch on. It seems like the business has really increased in notoriety. Like it before it seemed like kind of like this obscure little store kind of out by the airport. And suddenly it's like it's very present and it's present in my life because I have lots of people in my life that like love the store and, and go there. But uh, something that you mentioned to Monica in the pre-interview is that when COVID came in, all the money that you would spend in, in trade shows before you pushed into uh, advertising online and that like opened up the floodgates basically. Yeah. It's funny because I hang out with people now and they go, oh, I think Google's listening to me because I was talking about this and now they're giving me an ad for it. And in my head, I'm going, I know how that works because I do it, right? So <laughs> when COVID happened, it was one of those things where I just had like small rock shop and everything. And uh, I didn't really have a lot of customers back then. I was making my a lot of my money from doing trade shows. So I had a trailer that I tow around behind my my car and I go to rock shows set up and I make thousands of dollars there every weekend. Uh, I go back to my shop and kind of make things and deal with a few customers. All of a sudden, all the trade shows are canceled. But trade shows cost money and markets and things like that, whether it's 200 bucks or 700 bucks for the weekend or whatever it is, sometimes they're 1500 bucks for a weekend. All that money now, I wasn't investing in, in those markets. So I started just trying Google ads and Facebook ads. And that's really what drew a lot of people to my business. It took me a long time to understand the difference between marketing and advertising too. Like I was just thought they were like uh, synonyms, but they are very different things. Um, Why don't you explain it for the audience? Marketing would be like, like you talked about the culture of my business. You walk in, you're impressed, you have a good vibe. Um, it's your logo, your branding, um, the feel, your Google reviews, what people say about you. And that's my general business for the products. It's the marketing of like, oh, this is high quality. Or I go, honestly, that one's made overseas, but 
the cost is right. Whereas the advertising is how I direct traffic to my store. The biggest factor in me making sales is traffic, right? Same with a, whether it's a trade show or at my store, the more bodies that roll through my product, whether it's online too, the more people looking at it, just statistically, the more likely I'm gonna make a sale. Sure, good marketing helps with that too. That's how you increase that option. But if you have a thousand people walk by your product, someone's going to buy it. You know what I mean? At some point, one of those thousand people is going to spend some money. So it's a matter of generating that traffic. So that's why people in business talk about high traffic areas like the retail sectors and stuff like that. I'm in a warehouse district that I renovated to be really nice. It was an empty cement shell before I did it. So I renovated it and made it uh, a storefront, but I have to direct the traffic. I don't have people that walk by. Sure, word of mouth helps, but um, but Google ads, Facebook ads, targeting them, understanding my customer basis of, you know, looking at the logistics of my social media. Okay, females between 20 and 50 are the most active on my social media, like liking my posts. So I put a bit more money into targeting those people as customers when I'm directing ads towards them. Listening to the, the customers where they came from, like, oh, I stopped at the plant shop on the way here. You know, someone at yoga told me about this. Like there's kind of a vibe that goes to the crystal world, meditation, yoga. Again, 80% of my customers are metaphysical. Where else might they go in life? Because I can target them based on their GPS. If they've ever been in another rock shop, more than two times, I can target them for that. Or if they use certain keywords on their IP address, I can target them for that. So I'm not just using crystal fossil in my target words, I'm using the other rock shops in the town, or I'm looking at other things that they might have of interest. Ironically, it's a tough field because anyone in the world can like rocks. And I mean that like, literally like you can have little kids, you can have older people, people from all ethnicities because it's mother nature and everyone can relate to mother nature. There's no pop culture in it or anything, which is a really cool thing about it too, right? Is you get people from all walks of life. You know, we get like, we get people that are gangsters that are in there that genuinely love minerals. We get old ladies that um, that used to be geologists. We get kids that want to learn how to be a, a jeweler, a gemologist. Like some kids are like seven years old and they know more about some of the rocks than I do, right? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes tough for marketing, but you figure it out as you go on, like, or sorry, the advertising, but um, that's really what drove more people to my store and um, I think just picking minerals like there's other rock shops in town they sell beads or tools for crafting and they teach courses and stuff but no one was really doing crystals and especially high quality crystals and I think that's where I flourished to the extent now where I've talked to people that shop at my store frequently and my store actually allowed them to get into the hobby of collecting because before they go in every rock shop and it's all the same product all the same thing and it's challenging because, yeah, like Rose Quartz sells all the time. Amethyst, it's like a key seller. Like when I did the, the trade shows before and stuff, I'd sell the things I made and sometimes I'd sell them. But Amethyst, the marketing is done. Every girl in the world knows what an Amethyst is or an Opal, right? It's Everyone knows what it is. But no one knows what Azurine is from Malawi or something, you know? So as a business thing, it is actually difficult to be like, well, I'm going to take the unbeaten path and see if it works. It's a total gamble because there's no assurance. There's no models that say this has worked, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas people buy amethyst and just keep flipping it all the time because amethyst, every, every person has an amethyst. It's a starter-based crystal. So buying those rare things, um, yeah, it was definitely a, a gamble. And then, But it paid off and, and people were into it. And it was one of those things where the market wasn't there, but I created it right by by just keeping my business afloat and gaining the customers as they as they grew
All right, so we're heading into the, the end of the interview. Uh, whenever I do an interview, we always ask what we call the crucial three, three very difficult questions. And they get harder in scale as we go along, but they're usually kind of fun, kind of funny. Um, before we do that, though, any shout outs, anything you want to say, uh, you want to tell the audience? Come to my rock shop, Rebel Rock and Gem, 250 Southwest Marine Drive. We're open every day, 11 to 6. Excellent. And we'll put all the info on the show and the episode bio as well. All right. So you ready? Okay. Now, camera can't see this, but you're wearing no shoes. And you mentioned earlier, you know, it's like I stopped wearing shoes. So is it true you went five years without even owning a pair of shoes? Yeah. All right. What has been the biggest benefit you have experienced as not wearing shoes? Self-perception, probably. A lot of other people judge me based on it and I have to anticipate what their judgment is. Sometimes I don't want to have to anticipate it, but the amount of attention I'm getting, I can't evade. I have to acknowledge it. Um, now I put shoes on when I walk around in public. The only reason I have flip-flops is so that I can avoid some of that attention. It's just too much now for me. But it gave me a realization of, um, yeah, how other people see me. and. And also how much that doesn't matter, you know? Um, sometimes I'll do it to avoid talking with other people, but in my rock shop, my rock shop, my rules, I get to go to work, be who I want, wear what I want. Mm -hmm. Same with my employees, like I have no dress code, you know? I mean, it's it's one thing, like when I was shoeless, like you go on a date with a girl and you gotta explain why you're in a restaurant without shoes. And then like, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, did they have like sleep with a hobo on their bucket list kind of thing, you know? Like, um, so. It taught me to, I think, um, explain myself well. Um, I don't know, like defend my actions and whether it's worth it or not. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. Just I think self awareness and it gave me presence too of just like when I'm in my environment, like uh, yeah, just what's around me because I don't want to step in poop. All right, second question. You must have gotten this one many, many times. What's the most catastrophic thing that's ever happened as a result of not wearing shoes? Stepped in a lot of poop. One time, the two times I stepped in the same poop. Coming home from my apartment, I parked, ran inside, there was dog poop in the in the grass. I was like, oh God, stepped in it. Very next day, parked, went through the same dog poop, the same oh the, the very next day. Oh that was probably the worst, but I've had all kinds of things. Like it, my, my feet are so callous now that uh, I get, like I have glass in my feet right now that I know about. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of changed my gait a bit, but it it's a like mild irritant, but there's probably glass in like three places in my foot. I'll stop at some point and just pick them back out. But like the glass doesn't affect me anymore. I remember there was a time when I was going barefoot enough where I used to avoid, like you see a broken bottle on the street and you avoid it. There was a point in my life where I was like, I wonder if I can now. And I just, without changing my gait, walked right through like broken ball on the sidewalk. And I got through it without glass, like cutting me or embedding. And I was like, oh, I think I'm there, you know? Whoa, man. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's real fear factor stuff going on. All right, final question for you. So, you know, I, I've done some reading on like, sh like people not wearing shoes before and just out of like just pure interest because shoes weren't a thing. Like human beings didn't wear shoes for a long period Their of time. Their form body, yeah. Yeah. Um, and in fact, a friend of uh, Monica and, and mine, she refers to shoes as foot coffins. And she's like, I'm really into sneakers. She's like, God, you have a ton of foot coffins. It's kind of like a, a fun joke between us. But uh, I became really interested in like, there's a lot of benefits to actually walking around without shoes and like having your feet free of that. 
So just from a, like someone who grew up wearing shoes and at a certain point didn't, how did, how did your feet change and adapt to being free of that to serve you in a different way or in a better way? Mm. I never knew how much pinky toes affected balance. The way I was able to shift my weight differently, like in a shoe, if you look like your shoes, your toes are the narrowest part of your show. Look at my feet just casually. Yeah. What is the widest part? My toes, right? Yeah. So it takes away so much of your balance, like the ability to be nimble and shift things, um, shift your weight when you're walking through a crowd. Um, and especially if you're attentive and watching where people are going to end up and stuff, you can really just guess. And sometimes you got to just squeak right past them. The ability to have that pinky toe is amazing. Sometimes I found too, like when I didn't wear shoes uh, at all, I'd be at a curb waiting for the light to change and my toes would just naturally find the edge of the curb and they just want to hang on there. Like just like, not like a tree branch, I guess kind of like a tree branch actually. Yeah. They just always wanted to be grasped, right? They almost turn into hands again, like constantly feeling it's like a free foot massage, all the different textures you, you walk on too. But, um, people come in my store and they're like, Oh, you're grounding, you're grounding. And I go, no, I just don't like shoes. Like I'm very sciencey, like the rock world. You know, I joke, I'm like an apothecary that doesn't believe in his own medicine because everyone's there for crystal healing. And I sorted my whole store by chemical composition. Right. So, um, so people come in and Oh, you're grounding. And I go, no, I just don't like shoes. Right. Like, um, I just don't see the point. Um, but it's also fun too, like winters sometimes, like, like walking in the snow. We're not like in the, I don't know, 19th century or 18th century or outside as often anymore. Like I'm driving places I go. So my time outside is kind of limited. If I'm going to be outside a long time, I'll put on shoes. But like, even in the winter, if I'm just going to park my car and run into the shop or, you know, um, be putting gas in my vehicle, even if it's winter, I remember one time I was walking to the bus and like back when I used to take the bus everywhere, I was walking to the bus station and like there's frost on the ground, right? There's significant frost and like it's cold. And I know when I get to the bus station, I might be there 10 minutes waiting. But when I get on the bus, my feet will warm up and then I got to take another bus and wait and stuff and walk more. But I know, okay, max time and I'll be out there like 20 minutes. And it's, it's Canada, Vancouver. If I get really that cold, all I do is walk inside a business and whatever, right? Like I'm not going to die from it. But I like the challenge of it. And I remember this one time walking to a bus stop, frost on the ground, and just the the life from that cold. It's like a cold shower. Well, probably people like that are jumping in a cold lake, like that just shocked to your nervous system. I remember thinking, like, I know why wolves smile now. Like you see the crazy face on wolves when they're like, <laughs> like, and they're outside in the wild and they're like, I'm like, I feel like I understand that because like you know, everything's cold and you're just dealing with it and it's making you hypersensitive to your surroundings. And it's like, like you feel alive, you know, and then you're looking at all these other people on their cell phone or got their headphones in and you realize how dormant they are sometimes. And so just the engagement with my environment increased so much by being barefoot. Ah, amazing, man. Yeah. Such a cool story. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being on here. Any last words you want to share with anyone here? Thanks for doing this with me. Hopefully I answered some questions you had. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone, uh, please check out uh, the shop. It is super awesome. And this is coming from a person who is not, uh, you know, that's not my passion. And I love going there because I think it's so cool. So with that, everyone, uh, it's another episode of One Step Beyond. I'm Aram Arslanian, and we will see you next time. Mike, drop the beat.